Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tom Schaud. We're at August Cellars in Newburgh. It's June 21st, 2021. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Ah, uh, <laughs> why not wine? Um, um, wow, uh, so I, I started my life back after college being a high school drama English teacher and lasted for three years. Went and got a master's degree from the University of British Columbia in scene design and stage technology. Came back to Oregon and the Oregon State Teachers and Standards and Practices Commission um, wouldn't accept my degree for continuing education. So at that point I did some professional theater, realized that I was never gonna be good enough to get to be more than, than just at the bottom edge of that. Uh, Switched to manufacturing, worked in a manufacturing plant for seven years, and it got laid off in 2001. And in 2002, my aunt looked at me and, and Grace said, you know, Star and Brown Winery is gonna be for sale. Um, and Rachel Starr was the winemaker for it, and she was also the original owner of Wines on Broadway up in Portland. Um, and her partner apparently d decided that it was more fun to renovate old buildings than it was to deal with federal taxes and compliance issues. Um, and so I said, well, that sounds like a great idea because that would get me back onto the family farm. Uh, my grandfather bought this ground in 1942. He was born on Old Paramountain in 1904. His parents came to Oregon in 1902. Um, and I said, well, that's great. I don't have enough money to buy a winery. Um, I turned to my brother and I said, Jim, how do you feel about a family-owned winery? And he said, let me go crunch some numbers. And I figured since he didn't say no, that was a good sign. <laughs> and he came back and said, yeah, it's doable. Well, we couldn't agree on a buying price to buy back the, uh, the old walnut dryer that had been converted into a winery. Um, and so we actually built on this bottom acre of the farm that was too steep to actually farm efficiently. So we changed our business model from being a standalone little winery um, to an alternating proprietorship. So August Cellars is now home to eight wineries. Um, it's a 16,000 square foot facility. Um, it's a three-story gravity flow winery. And so, you know, why wine? Because wine gets me back onto the family farm and we set it up as uh, an S-corp and hopefully the next generation is willing to actually, you know, step on board and take over activities and farming and It'll all, basically, we're holding everything in trust for the next generation, right? You know, long-term greed. I want the next generation to have, a, mm -hmm. have, a, have, have, have access to all of this. Mm -hmm. So that's why wine. What was your, what did you know about wine before this? Oh, boy. Um, 
when Alvin came from the TTB to interview me about how to be, have, why, why, you know, what did I know about winemaking? I looked at him and said, well, I've been drinking wine since I was 21. <laughs> um, <laughs> he kind of rolled his eyes. Uh, we, uh, you know, I mean, we grew up, I grew up here, um, and quite literally, I was the youngest of four kids, and when I turned 21, my family, you know, we went out winery tasting Thanksgiving weekend. We were part of the consumer. We were, you know, going out, we hit, you know, the four or five wineries in a day on, on the day after Thanksgiving, and we were all adult children. Um, and, and, you know, as when I graduated, you know, from, from college, then we were all, you know, these adult households. And, you know, it was amazing how when you pull up to a winery with, with you know, five adult households, how you could buy five cases of wine and get a great price, and you spend all of your alcohol budget in one day um, for the entire year. But, you know, you have great wine to drink over the course of the year. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so, you know, talking to winemakers from what 1985 until you know we started our winery in 2002 um, so that means 2001 we were still out you know going winery hopping mm -hmm. so you know what do I know about wine I, I, I know I know what I love I know the history of the Oregon wine I know that that you know that what makes Oregon unique is is the fact that we're willing to talk about the things that are good and the things that we wish we could have done better and laugh at our own foibles. Um, that's that's why why Oregon wine. That's what I know. Um, so what? From '85 to '90 to 2001, I was the most important part of the industry. I was a consumer. Now I'm now I'm now now I run a building that has eight wineries in it. So I'm I'm not as important as I used to be. Tell me about, we'll start, with the, we'll start with the property first. Tell me about, you mentioned a little bit of the history of this property. Tell me a little bit about, uh, kind of fill in some of the details about the history of the property and, and what it looked like when you bought it back. So, so this, this land, my grandfather bought in 1942. Um, and when we started the winery in 2002, grandfather was 98, 98. Um, well, 90, yeah, I guess 98, we're not four. Um, and then we looked at him and said, okay, well, this deal to dry back the, the walnut dryer fell through since he was also on the, he was a stockholder, you know, it was a family owned company. He was part of the, you know, he owned some stock in it. We said, well, what about building on the bottom of the, of, of the orchard? And he said, well, that's okay. So we, we moved the tractor shed from, from where we're sitting quite literally uh, halfway up the, the orchard um, and we hired, you know, we did our first two crushes 2002-2003 down at Wildman's Winery um, where we were essentially custom crushes, crushes we were, as we were, you know, receiving fruit and making wine and Rachel Starr was our winemaker. Um, so when we, we hired her as well as buying some equipment. Um, Seemed like a great way to solve that problem. Um, and my brother, you know, looked over her shoulder and learned a lot um, and became our winemaker in 2004. Um, and so this, this farm used to be walnuts and prunes and black caps, black raspberries. Um, and today it's still walnuts and prunes. Um, the prunes are holding 
our holding crop right now. We don't know what to do with that seven acres. Um, I'm hoping the next generation has some brilliant ideas. Um, and the, the black caps are now a 12 acre Pinot Noir vineyard, uh, La Cantera too, which is leased to Walnut City Wine Works. I'm curious. You mentioned kind of a long, kind of a long time as a consumer before before starting this. I'm I'm curious about that. Tell me about your impressions of Oregon wine and of the industry before getting into it on on this end. Um, boy, it, now I have to walk carefully now. Um, uh, so, you know, my favorite winery, growing up, growing being a consumer, was Serendipity Cellars. Uh, Glenn and Cheryl Longshore, they lived down in Airlie. Their winery was quite literally just uphill from Airlie Winery, which mm -hmm. is still in operation. Um, Glenn did Marichelle Foch. Uh, bought it from Meadows Vineyard, which was a vineyard that was started in the mid-70s. I want to say like 76, 77. I think Glenn's first year was maybe 79, 78. Um, and he did Foch, and it's a hybrid grape, so it's nobody knows what it is. Um, you know, this big, earthy, rustic red wine that lasts forever. Um, and he, on Thanksgiving weekend, would do a vertical. So you would go in, you'd have one tasting fee for this and the second tasting fee for the vertical, and you would taste from the beginning going to the most current vintage. And so you would sit there and you would discover that Marichal Foch was a grape that was like, oh my God, you know, don't drink it for five years. And if you can wait 10 years, you have this beautiful, beautiful wine. Um, you know, it throws sediment sideways as well as putting it on the cork. Um, it's, you know, it's purple. It's not, it's not Pinot by any stretch of the imagination. It's probably one of the best grapes that grow in Oregon to make a port out of um, uh, because it's such a big, hearty red wine, which is what you want for port. Um, and so Glenn's last year was 1999. Uh, and so we laughed by saying, well, you know, so we could go to Meadows Vineyard in 2002 and we could start to make Marichal Foch. And, We've been buying Foch from Meadows Vineyard since 2002, and this is 2021. And Naomi just told me last year that she's second generation in terms of, you know, her husband is the son of the original owners, mm -hmm. um, that they're gonna pull the vineyard out this year um, because it's a lot of work and it's harder to find labor and, um, so we'll buy fruit you know, this year, and this will be the last year that we get Marichal Foch from them. And then we'll have to figure out, what do we do? Um, but as it stands right now, you know, we've got, you know, you know, we're selling old Foch on the tasting room counter as the current vintage. We've got port still in barrel, so I feel like I'm okay for the next few years mm -hmm. as I think about where do I, where do I go to find more, more Foch for port. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, so as a consumer, you know, you get to walk in, you get to meet these winemakers, um, you get to, you know, um, you get to ask them the questions. They get to wax poetically about about what they're passionate about. Um, tasting wine 
when it's young because you know in the 80s it was you know still the same thing going on now for all the small wineries i bottled it i need to release it because i need the money to pay for harvest and i need the warehouse space um, to put the next this next wine so you know thanksgiving weekend was great um, but you know you learned eventually that oh well look if you can hang on to it if you know how to sell our wine it gets better and better and better um, and so one of the things that we actually do is we because we built enough building to be our own warehouse is we actually warehouse our wines mm -hmm. so my it's 2021 my current vintage on Pinot Noir is 2015 Willamette Valley um, you know I don't think anybody in the valley is that is doing that I think that anybody who's doing that is calling it a library wine it's it's our current release. It goes to Massachusetts. You can find it in, you know, restaurants and grocery stores and bottle shops in, in Boston. Um, yeah, and it makes us unique. It, mm -hmm. it, it says that we love our wine, but we love it when it's, when it's a little bit older. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, but it was fun because, you know, you walk into these, you know, I mean, you know, small, small tasting rooms, um, homemade food. You know, people were doing things. We'd always, you know, I mean, you know, Spring Hill Winery in Salem, they did brats and Zweibelkuchen um, and, and Federweissen. So you were drinking half-cooked Riesling with your onion kuchen and your brat first for lunch on the day you're going out wine tasting. I mean, how much fun is that? I think they still do that. Um, and they've been around, boy, I think since, since 1991, somewhere in there. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it, it, it's fun to see the people who got in early and, and, you know, found a niche way to market it. And it's tougher now because, you know, the new consumer doesn't have the same sort of brand loyalty that, that I think that, that, that my generation had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would go back and we would, we would hit, you know, three or four same places and look at one or two new ones. Um, but, you know, we always went back and, and, and you, know, mm -hmm. you had that relationship. Um, and now with 900 wineries, it, it, you don't have that, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There, I said nice things and I didn't say anything bad about anybody. Okay. <laughs> Nailed it. Tell me about then when how this place came to be in terms of initial design and thought and, and and what you wanted it to be from the beginning what was the initial plan to have it be an alternating proprietorship or is that something you just sort of grew into because of the space so when we did not successfully purchase the walnut dryer which would have been an awkward space because um, you know, the drying tunnels meant that there was a sloped floor um, on the main floor. Um, they'd lifted it up and, and finished out the, the dirt basement and poured a concrete basement. Uh, the crush deck had a low roof. Um, so, you know, there were, there were lots of strikes against it in terms of, you know, look, it's a barn that had been converted into a winery. So when we didn't, didn't agree the price, we turned around and we said, okay, well, we have a chance to build mm -hmm. what we think is a, like an ideal winery. Mm -hmm. um, and so here we were with the gall of one harvest under our belts um, where, you know, the, the de-stimmer 
Um, basically, it was shredding Pinot Noir as it came out there. Um, so it was a, it was it was macerating the fruit, you know, wonderfully. If you want to make a big Pinot <laughs> and if you want to age it for a while, um, if you're trying to make a delicate thing that you're releasing soon, it was not so much. Um, and the hillside here, where we where we couldn't farm, is a 22 degree slope. So even with an orchard crawler, even with the tractor that we had, it was really too steep, and because the road too narrow to actually farm very well. Mm -hmm. um, so we had the tractor shed here, um, and there was an old cherry tree and an old pie cherry tree, and we wound up picking out like seven walnut trees out of the orchard in order to develop the parking lot. And every floor is a ground floor. And there's a drop, you know, of 11 to almost 14 feet between each floor, and so gravity flow winery. Um, we hired an architect, the same architect that Carlton Winemaker Studio, so Boxwood out of Seattle. Um, they are good at doing, you know, uh, medium-sized wineries. Uh, they really focused on, you know, sustainability. Um, while we're sitting here with LED lights on over the top of us, we can actually, if we turn the lights off, we can still see, it'd be a little bit darker. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, gravity flow winery, mm -hmm. um, every floor is ground floor for driving out, um, built into the hillside. So the barrel rooms are, are daylight basements. Um, you know, we have a warehouse on the second floor which lives underneath the crush deck. The crush deck has a clear roof. Um, uh, indirect lighting, north north windows um, and you know we we laughed and we said you know if Carlton Winemaker Studio would have had a real hill it would have looked like us we're studio 2.0 um, and um, you know, there were so many things about what what they did well at the studio it was easy to to just say I like that too mm -hmm. so you know for example our crush line is elevated off the crush deck so the only people that are on the crush deck during harvest is a winemaker and a forklift operator. All the workers are safely up on, on, a, on a balcony area where they can't get run over. They're not gonna be walking in front of a forklift that has a, a thousand pounds of fruit on it. Um, so it's a lot safer during harvest. Mm -hmm. um, um, so you know, it, it wound up being if we're going to build a winery, let's build it to be most efficient. Let's build it if it has to be sold. It's a 16,000 square foot facility. It's perfect for, you know, doing 10,000 cases a year, mm -hmm. um, which is about what we do between all of the wineries in the building. Um, and you know, we have a, we, you know, so we have four barrel rooms that each barrel room typically has about two people in each barrel room. So. Do you want it to be heated to get through mallow? Do you want it to be, you know, what temperature do you want to cool it to in the summertime? Um, you're only negotiating with one person, unlike Carlton where you have however many people in one really big barrel room and everybody has to agree what temperature it gets to be. Um, we, we don't really have that problem here because you only have one roommate and, and, and it's a whole lot easier to come to reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so we also bought our own bottling line because these are all smaller lot wineries. So, you know, you're not trying to negotiate and schedule the bottling truck in. You could. We have built it so that the hookup is all there. Um, and um, we built it for flexibility. Absolutely built it for flexibility. Um, 
So, you know, so the plan was if we build a winery that also collects rent as a landlord, then I can sell wine at a more affordable price. Mm -hmm. Because I've had one job in my whole life where I did not have to live on a budget. And it's not this one. <laughs> it is not this one. Tell me about the August Sellers label and about sort of what you wanted to do with it as part of the bigger scheme here. So, so in order to be an alternating proprietorship winery, you have to have a host winery. So we have to be a winery. Um, otherwise, we can't have an alternating proprietorship. Okay. Um, you know, we could own a winery and then lease it to somebody else who would be the host winery. Um, so for August Sellers, for, so our concept was, our, our, our belief was that we wanted our wine to be a Tuesday night wine. There are 52 Tuesday nights in a year. We want to be the wine that you reach to when you go, wow, Tuesday. I thought Monday was yesterday. Um, um, and it should be affordable. Um, you only have one 35th wedding anniversary, one 50th wedding anniversary. We don't want to be that winery. There's enough people out there who want to be that winery. Um, because we hold our red wines, um, it's a lot harder to send our wine in to get it reviewed because the national press, the, the national magazines, they want to look at a whole vintage. So they want to look at, you know, oh look, it's, it's 2021. We want to review all of your 2020s. Well, our 2020, you know, um, would still be in, in bottles sitting in, in, in the warehouse and mm -hmm. we're going, it wouldn't be ready. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when we're going like, well, our current vintage is 2015, we'll send you that one. They're like, oh, no, we want, to do, we, want to do, we want to do the most, you know, well, that's our current vintage. Even the Oregon Wine Press has a problem with that. And it's like, you know, no, we want to look at 2019s and 2020s. No, 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 we're 2015. It's, uh, um, so we're a little out of step there, which probably is a good way to describe the whole, the whole operation, um, <laughs> is we're a little out of step with the Oregon wine industry as a whole. Um, Pinot Noir is nice. It's not the only wine out there. I love Big Reds, Marichal Foch. Um, white wine, it, wine should be part of dinner. It should be food. You know, what does our wine go best with? It goes best with dinner and people. Um, um, so, you know, so we've done Riesling and Gewürztraminer and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. Um, we've bought Merlot and did that for fun. We bought Cabernet and did that for fun. Um, Zinfandel. Um, we've got Zinfandel downstairs in the barrel room right now. We'll be bottling that. 2019 Zin this this summer sometime. Um, we do port. We do port because we love port. Um, people were telling us, oh no, port has to be in a small bottle. It has to be in a split. And we're like, uh, you know, it doesn't go bad. You open it up, you've got three months to finish the bottle, four months to finish the bottle. And the cost of the split is twice as much as the, the cost of that regular bottle. So. We, we, you know, we put ours in an adult-sized container because it's an adult wine. It's, um, and zero, zero resistance by consumers, right? They're like, oh, God, thank God. Thank God it's in a real bottle. <laughs> um, um, you know, it's great to make it be, you know, hoity-toity and, you know, a, an elite appeal, but that's not who we are. I mean, I'm the youngest of four kids. I've been knocked off my high horse so much that I, I don't know what it looks like anymore. Um, so, 
And the other thing was, you know, I looked at my brother, and my brother is like, okay, so we're going to build an alternate proprietorship. So the whole goal behind that for us is we're making money. Our wine can be more affordable because we don't have to pay all of our bills off of our sales. We're, we're a landlord. And we can turn around and we can say to our tenants, we know we could charge you more. But we think your wine should be affordable too. So we're, we, we, we've got this sort of target that we like to charge, but we're nowhere near the, the high end that it could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a gravity winery where the barrel rooms are underground and, and the humidity is always up around 85 to 95%. Um, and if you don't turn the chiller unit on, it gets all the way up to 66 degrees down there. Um, and it drops down to 58 in the wintertime. Um, it's really, it's like, you know, here, here is an ideal place to make Pinot Noir. We vibrate, we have a vibrating sorting line, we de-stem, it's all gravity, gravity down to the barrel rooms. Um, we have our, you, you have access to your own bottling, you know, the bottling line where you can bottle you know, a half day's worth of stuff. You don't have that huge expense of the, of the truck coming in, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so it's kind of like paying it forward. Mm -hmm. You know, we developed this great building and, you know, other wineries that make their wine here get, get that advantage. Mm -hmm. um, we don't force them to come be part of Thanksgiving weekend. We invite them. They don't want to be. That's fine. We don't want a cranky winemaker here. That's not. That's not. That's not what we're looking for. Um, it may not be your business model. Uh, you, you might feel like, well, my Pinot Noir is going to be competing with everybody else's Pinot Noir, so I don't want to do that. Um, I don't know. But you know, for the consumer, they get one tasting fee. You get in the door and you taste however many winemakers are there that weekend, um, and and. You know, it, it, it's a you buy it all at once, and so you get that case discount on five wineries. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a great deal is that for the consumer? Um, yeah. How much of that was sort of in the original plan, and how much of that has sort of changed and evolved uh, over the twenty years? really started out as a big chunk of the, I mean, you know, the big chunk of it, um, you know, having, you know, been 2000, you know, 2002, so the studio was open in 2001. So as a consumer, we got to go as a consumer to the studio, to the, to the Carlton Winemaker Studio. So absolutely, you know, the idea of walking around to different tables and tasting people's different wines, um, but some of them didn't seem really super happy to be there. Um, maybe it's because they wanted to be winemakers and they didn't want to be salespeople. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was because, you know, it's a long time standing there and you don't know, and everybody's asking the same question and you get tired of answering the same question. You know, winemakers are not kindergarten teachers. Um, although, really, having been a school teacher for three years, you know, let me talk, you, talk about wine. What, what is the history of Oregon wine? The history of Oregon wine is not Papapino. That's a great place if you're in the Willamette Valley to start. But the history of Oregon wine is, you know, Peter Britt. It's Southern Oregon. It's the notion that at one point in the 1890s, the or what, is, what is now the Oregon Department of Transportation, 
actually created a flyer talking about how the Rogue Valley was going to be this beautiful highway of chateaus uh, doing wine. Um, you know, anybody who starts the story with Papa Pino and um, and Erath and Adelsheim and you know uh, Ponzi and they ignore Honeywood. Honeywood's been around since 1934, Three. 33. Yeah. I mean, 33 was the end of Prohibition. So you start the next year. And what do you make wine with? You make wine with what's av available, which is fruit wine. There were grapes planted in the Willamette Valley long before Prohibition, but they got tore out because they didn't make good grape juice. They didn't make good jelly. It was, they were wine grapes, not not Concord, not not what you know made nice mm -hmm. jelly. So mm -hmm. they got pulled out, and farmers put in you know other things because prohibition in Oregon started three years before nationally. So we had a long time of farmers not making money off of grapes. So you change it, you pull it out. But you know the story starts so far before 1965 that to to not talk about the fruit wines, to not talk about you know. Look, Peter Britt, he had a half an acre of grapes down on the bottom of his property in town and 15 acres out there on the farm. And so when the revenuers showed up because they heard he was making wine and, and selling it, they said, oh, it's just for friends. He points to that, you know, that little half acre down there at the bottom of the hill. And then when the revenuers, well, let's go out to your farm and see the 15 acres. Oh, yeah, there's your first wine, bonded winery in Oregon. We don't tell that story up here because we're, we're the Willamette Valley. We're Pinot Noir. Willamette Valley is Pinot Noir. Well, but we're also Riesling. You know, why are we not known for Riesling? It's because the early winemakers didn't know how to tell farmers Riesling is like apples. If you don't thin the apple tree, you're going to have small green apples. Farmers understand the notion of thinning their fruits so that it's, it's more and riper and more flavor. But we didn't, we as winemakers didn't convey that message to the wine, to, to farmers who we convinced to grow fruit. So that's why we're not known for Riesling. We should be known for Riesling. Oh my God, we should be known for Riesling in this valley. Um, we have perfect climate for it. Um, so now I don't know what the question was anymore. It was a great answer either way. So <laughs> t tell me about learning, learning winemaking, learning for your own, for your own self, your own, your own brand. How long did it take you to figure out what you wanted to make, how you wanted to make it, and then how to make it? <sighs> well, when you buy, when, when, when you start a winery, it's really a crash course masterclass. Um, there's something about starting out at 1,500 cases that everything is repetition. Um, the bad habits you learn are the bad habits that the winemaker teaches you. So what Rachel Starr said, this is why we do it this way. Um, that's, that's my standard, right? Um, you know, the joke is, is that everybody who comes in the building as long as their bad habits don't, don't conflict with my bad habits, they can keep them. If their bad habits conflict with mine, then it has to go. So I had one, one winery that moved into the building and they wanted to use Paraquat to sanitize equipment and hoses and the barrel rooms. I'm going, you can't. They're going, but it's food grade. I'm going, it's bleach. Bleach 
pressure treated lumber mold equals cork twine equals equals and you can get it in your barrels so so we've already got the pressure treated timbers we've already got the mold so no bleach no bleach in the building well why do i do this welcome to ozone welcome to caustic and citric you know it's a little bit more elbow work but you know it's not so he was like oh so that was a bad habit that didn't agree with mine um, so it's, you know, I, I, I laugh because it's, it's, you know, so it's a master class in, in, in repetitiveness, you know, um, and you learn from mistakes. You learn from, you learn from, well, maybe we shouldn't have said that to the grower because he keeps bringing us fruit every day, every day. It's like, oh my God, 2003, we wound up, apparently we contracted for the whole vineyard. <laughs> Um, and we finally said, stop picking, go sell it to somebody else. Really, we gave fruit away to, to Wild Winds that year because, you know, we were running at a ton an hour. And when you have 20 tons of fruit delivered today and, and 18 tons of fruit delivered the next day from the same vineyard, it's like, okay, so we're working 10 hour days, 12 hour days at a ton an hour. It's just sitting there in 2003 was a hot year. So we've got this whole, you know, carbonic maceration thing going in the fermenters already before we go ahead and, 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 and process it. Um, you know, so, you know, you learn from, wow, well, maybe, maybe unbridled enthusiasm is not the right choice if you're running a winery because you still have to turn around and sell it. Um, but you also get the joy of saying, I really want to make port. So our 2003 port uh, was a half barrel. You know, bought, bought this Hungarian half barrel from Vidai down in Southern Oregon. Um, uh, I make very good barrels. These are the best barrels. You love them. Um, and we didn't, you know, it's like, so in order to get the high proof alcohol to, to, to stop fermentation, my brother said, really? I said, yes. And so he went and he cleaned out all five liquor stores in Salem out of their Everclear. Because in order to get the right volume, you had to have however many fifths that was. Um, and the only way to get it was to buy it already tax paid um, and dump it back in. And so here we are siphoning out into our, you know, our, our food grade garbage can, which we had drawn a line for this is, this is the volume that we need. And as we're siphoning it out, Laura Volkman and I are swirling bottles of, 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 of Everclear in to, to, to stop fermentation. And we let it sit for a couple of days to settle out. And it was like, wow, what a beautiful port. It had overnotes of cocoa and mocha and just this thing of beauty. Um, and, you know, the, the barrel kind of weeped out because, you know, at 18% alcohol, 17.5% alcohol, that the great it doesn't hold quite as tightly as is when it's 14 or 12 percent alcohol so that was like oh look at that weepy barrel now huh um but you know i love making port i love drinking port it's um you know so you learn by doing and 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 hopefully keeping good enough notes that next year you know not to do that or to do that again because mm -hmm. every experiment is what a three-year experiment right um you know unfined unfiltered red wines what's the risk Sediment on the back of the cork. I'll live with that. 
because that means that the wine is doing something. It's aging in the bottle. It's not just going away. It actually gets better until it hits a peak, and then it starts to fade. But it makes it last longer in the bottle when it's unfined and unfiltered. It's not made for now. It's not made for drink now. But we make a Gamay Noir now, and, and that's a drink now wine. Um, and you, know, you look around and you have, you know, in this building you have eight winemakers or seven other winemakers. You want a master class discussion of what's going on and what you think are going on. You know, what about, you know, what about chapelizing? What about, you know, adding a little bit of water? What about adding acids, you know? And, and everybody's doing it uh, or, or is, is, is looking at it. And they're looking over everybody else's shoulder at the same time, you know? The joy of the Oregon wine industry, there are no secrets because it's like making meatloaf. My mother makes the best meatloaf. I bet your mother makes a really good meatloaf too. If I were to give you my mother's meatloaf recipe, it would not be as good as my mother's meatloaf. Because it boils down to what she thinks a medium onion is and what it means by until or until it sticks together or to flavor. Um, and that's, that's Pinot Noir in a nutshell. You know, how many clones of Pinot Noir are there? A hundred, somewhere around there. How many different barrel reps are there out there? Barrel makers, toast levels. How many different yeasts are there that you could use? Are you using native yeasts? Are you inoculating? Do you use enzymes? Do you not use enzymes? Do you put wood chips in during fermentation or do you not? I mean, all of these things. And, and so it's all about what I want to do and what, what my taste buds are and how I view it. Um, and that's what makes Pinot so unique. That's what makes the Oregon wine industry so unique is, is we're willing to like, like talk about what we did and share share with each other. Here, taste this. What do you and and you know, there's people out there with better noses than I and better taste buds than I. Um, and but still, it's it's that whole you know, what what do you do? What do you like? Because ultimately, it boils down to you have to be your own biggest cheerleader. You're the one who's out there selling it. You know, get the distributor excited about it. Get their staff excited about it. And suddenly, you know, you're you know, your Pinot Noir is everywhere in Boston and America's Test Kitchen says, and for that lighter bodied red wine that you can chill, we recommend August Sellers Pinot Noir because they don't, they don't do paid advertisements. They do what's readily available in Boston. So it's like, oh wow, that's exciting. Um, yeah. um, so that, I mean, you know, so, so the, you know, it's, it, in, you know, so right this year, this last year, 2020, smoke, smoke everywhere. I mean, everybody was talking about how do you deal with that? Everybody. And people like Chris Dixon, Twill Sellers, who bought fruit from Southern Oregon and had smoke impacted Syrah a couple of years earlier, you know, he was the building expert <laughs> um, because he had already fought through it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what was his plan? What was he doing? Um, and it was, you know, great to have because you know, we all, all, all of our ships rise together in this building. Um, you know, um, when when one of the wineries in this in this building gets national press, hmm. you know, you come to visit them in Oregon. Where do you go to? You go visit Crowley Wine at August Cellars. You go, um, you go visit Ovum, you know, at August Cellars. Um, yeah, it's um, so it's you know you, you 
it's a, it, it's like you know living with 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 a master class all the time. So let's talk about. I have a couple questions based on that. We're going to start with the, the tenant wineries first. Uh, you obviously you've had a lot over the years. Uh, tell me about what you're looking for in a, in, a, in a tenant winery here, and maybe what they're looking for out of you, and how you make the relationship work. The biggest thing about being a tenant winery, about being a winery in an alternate proprietorship, is to have the ability to wait your turn. Um, uh, harvest is basically first come, first serve. Um, so, you know, Potter's Vineyard is a quarter mile up the hill. They could, in theory, you know, bring down a truckload of fruit and be the first fruit in that day. Well, except you have to have the whole vineyard in. So, um, so if it takes a while to get all three truckloads down, um, or four truckloads loaded and back down the hill here, then somebody else might sneak in ahead of you because they had, you know, uh, more people picking and they started an hour earlier, even though they had a half an hour to drive to get here. Um, and so, you know, so, you know, it's that whole, the first vineyard that's completely in is the first fruit that we run. Um, you know, we've had, we had two winemakers who got together and rented a 40-foot refrigeration container back in, I can't remember what year it was, a long time ago. And my brother and I looked at that and said, well, that's a brilliant idea. And so the next year, we took that over. We just incorporated that into, this is something that the building thinks is really important, mm -hmm. so that if you want to chill your fruit overnight, um, or if you want to cold soak your, your, your macro bin, you can fit it in there. Um, you know, the rule is fresh fruit has priority over, over processed fruit. Um, but so there's a schedule. So there's, a, you know, and everybody like signs up for, you know, they say, I think I'm going to have my fruit. I'm picking my fruit on Thursday. Um, they write it on the chalkboard. Um, they estimate how much fruit it is. And then if there's a special need. Um, special needs are, I want to do, you know, I want to, I want to do an extended soak on my rosé. So does that mean that you load it directly into the press and tie the press up? Or do you load it into a, a, a macro bin and then bin dump it into the press after it's sat for six hours? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, my job is the logistics side of that, to figure out how does this all run. Um, it also means that because of my theater background, I know that nothing good happens after 11 o'clock at night. Um, there is no. There is nothing good that happens in a manufacturing facility or in a construction facility after 11 o'clock at night. So we have run two shifts. I refuse to run a shift past 11 o'clock at night um, because that's when accidents happen. Um, you know, that's when people make mistakes. That's when doors get opened. That's when you know, things, 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 things go wrong. Um, you know, I've spent too many years doing professional theater where, you know, you're painting at 3 o'clock in the morning, and after a while, you're really not painting so much as you're, like, just kind of, like, dabbing at things with a paintbrush and thinking to yourself, I could be asleep. I could be asleep. I could be asleep. Now I'm just going to put a shadow there. Now I'm going to be asleep. No, it's not. Um, and so, you know, the people who, you know, are young and idealistic and want to punch down three times, you know, I, want to, I need to punch down at 2 a.m. It's like. 
If you do, you have to bring somebody with you because you have to have a lifeguard. You cannot be in the building alone during harvest. You need to have a lifeguard. Um, so what, what tenants look for is, you know, an affordable place, a place that will allow them to make wine the way they want to make wine, um, to whatever crazy notions they have, let that happen. Mm -hmm. um, and what we look for is somebody who is willing to bite their tongue when they're mad because they want to do it now and there's somebody in front of them. Um, so, and it's, it's, it's a tightrope to walk, but you know, it's that whole, you know, anybody who comes in here for one season as a one-off, which we've had before, mm -hmm. they don't get the concept that just because you're trying to do 30 tons because you made a mistake and, and broke contract and your winery wasn't ready yet, um, you are no more important in terms of where you stand in line as Laura Volkman Vineyards, who does, you know, f five tons of Pinot Noir. You know, she's actually probably, in my book, more important because she's going to make wine here next year. Whereas you, I'm helping you out because you, you know, your general contractor made a mistake and, and grapes were early that year and, and you're upset because you're, you know, hoity-toity and everything else. Um, and um, we should all bow down to you because you, you know, you're, you're wonderful and, you know, you're going to give me a lot of money for doing 30 tons. But, you know, you, you still have to, you know, be able to play well with others. Mm -hmm. You know, it ultimately boils down to it's my ball, it's my rules, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you can't if you can't if you can't live by that, then you you need to move on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you are kind of a kindergarten teacher then, still. Or herding cats, one of the <laughs> two. Um, probably herding cats is a better description. Um, and no, because I, I, my, my brother was actually much better at being the principal than I was. Because um, um, I'm out there in the trenches trying to organize everybody and I don't have time for tomfoolery. I get, I get kind of short during harvest just like everybody else. Um, but you know, you all take a deep breath and you get to the end of harvest and, and you bury the hatchet and you pick up and you go on. Um, You mentioned uh, selling wine, obviously a, a, a difficult thing for, for many people. Tell me about selling your wine, especially making a lot of non-Pinot varietals. Uh, where, where have you found markets? Where have you found consumers? And, and what, uh, what are they looking for from, from you? Boy, they're looking for Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> they're looking for Pinot. Uh, Boston is my number one market. I, they, they, they buy Pinot Noir almost exclusively. A little bit of Riesling, a little bit of Chardonnay. Um, everything else, you know, if you can't sell it out the front door, it's not going to get sold. Marichal Foch is a grape that everybody says, I've never heard of that before. And gee, a grape that's been around since 19, what? Before World War I um, is a hybrid grape. Um, and named after a field marshal from World War I because he was a hero. Um, but, you know, it's not, unless you're from the Finger Lakes District of, of New York or Ontario, Canada, you've never heard of it. Maybe BC, um, you know. Um, and, you know, nobody can pronounce Gewurztraminer, so nobody wants to order it. Um, 
And it's definitely because of all of that spiciness to it and the aromatics. Um, you know, it's, it's people either love it or hate it. Um, there's not, you know, Foch is probably the same way. Um, you know, Americans sadly, you know, it, either it's trendy and we go for it, or it's one of the five things that I know. Um, but you know, it's pretty rare to find Americans who, ooh, I really like Heath bars. Um, um, it's like, uh, um, we all like Hershey's, we all like Nestle, we all like the big brands, we all like the things we know. Um, we don't like the strange and unusual because we don't know what to serve it with. We don't know what do we do with it after we buy it. Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably the biggest resistance to port is, well, what do I do with it? Oh, you, know, you open it, you open it with Thanksgiving and you have it with the pumpkin pie and the walnut pie. And, and then if you have any leftover, you've rolled right into Christmas in the gingerbread season and you have it with that. Um, you know, and, and it's just, they just don't know, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I don't know what to do with it or how to pronounce it. I don't necessarily want to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's like you can't sell Pinot Gris in Florida because it's Pinot Grigio because of all the Italians that moved from New York, I guess. I don't know. Um, um, and you try to explain, well, it's the same grape. The difference is the Pinot Grigio is what lean and more acidic driven and Pinot Gris is more fruit driven. It's fruity and flavorful and goes with, yeah, I mean, you know, um, it's not supposed to be paint thin. It's not supposed to strip paint. Um, you know, Gruner Veltiger is another one. I would love to make Gruner Veltiger. I think that that's, that's one that, that the Oregon could grow really, really well. But another German pronunciation, right? Gruner, umlauts. Umlauts are the death of a wine in, 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 in America. Gewürztraminer, Gruner Veltiger. It's, it's a horrible thing. Uh, you sound like a foghorn when you say the name of the grape. Maybe you can't sell it. I don't know. Uh, so the taste room. The taste room is, 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 is crucial. And, and that's and that's gotten more segmented and harder to reach the public with now because social media. Social media is nothing but a bunch of white noise. Uh, you know, it's how much spaghetti do you throw at the wall and stick? You know, um, and you don't know what, what sticks and how it sticks. Um, I so missed the Oregonian when it was a daily newspaper. It had a readership um, because you could put an ad in there. They would do Oregon wine country. They would pull out supplements and mm -hmm. and that drove hundreds of people to my tasting room mm -hmm. um, and where we're located from Portland we see people at the beginning of the day and we see people at the end of the day because the tide washes past us and it washes back to Portland so quite literally we've always had this lull around three o'clock in the afternoon 2 30 to 3 30 there's nothing going on we all get lunch breaks then we can take naps it's all wonderful but um, you know we have people you know, knocking on the door at 10 to 11. Are you open yet? And then we have people coming in at you know, 4:45. Can, can we still taste? Um, and it's just, yeah, um, you know, our location is not conducive to the middle of the day. Maybe somebody an hour down the valley is is more lucky, right? I don't know. Um, so, with all the varietals, especially ones maybe people are unfamiliar with or unable to pronounce. How much of your job then is consumer education or, or convincing people to try something they're not comfortable with? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the big part of it right there. And, you know, and so in the wintertime when there's no consumers, when, when, when not a lot of people come out, we just do an August seller's flight, um, which pre-pandemic was six wines. Um, 
during the pandemic. Currently, it's four wines. So you get to pick four wines off of the, 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 the flight of, of eight. Mm -hmm. So you can do all red, you can do all white, you can do half and half. Um, uh, and then in the summertime, when, when foot traffic picks up, we then add the, the, the building flight, the tenant flight, which is typically all red. And, and you'd be surprised how many people who walk into a, into a winery and say, oh my god, do you have anything but Pinot Noir? We've been tasting Pinot Noir for four days. It all tastes the same now. Um, and we go, well, we have, so we have an artisanal Gamay Noir, we have a Cabernet, we have a Grenache, we have a Maréchal Foch, we have a Zinfandel, we have a Bord. They go, oh my god, I'll take all of those. Um, you know, um, because they're not, they're not Pinots. Um, you know, as wonderful as Pinot Noir is, you're, you're, you're slicing the difference between this red fruit and that red fruit. And while I grew up picking berries, and I can tell you the difference in flavor profile between a Logan berry, a boysenberry, a Marion berry, a Himalayan blackberry, a monster berry, a black raspberry, a red raspberry. Um, and I can tell you what they taste like at different parts of the growing season when they're early and when it's late and the overripe fruit. And, you know, as it gets jammier, as the heat years happen, um, you know, um, that that's Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is like, so you'll notice that this has, has like tones of Willamette raspberries leading into some lovely royal and cherries followed by a little bit of Bing. It's like, how many people know what those are? Really, really. It's a red cherry, a black cherry, it's a, it's a raspberry, right? I mean, you know, and so trying to slice the difference between all of those different things Sometimes it's nice just to say, wow, that's just a big old fruity red wine, isn't it? So, um, and, and that's, at some point, that's really where we're all at. I just, I just want something that's big and fruity and reaches them up and grabs my shirt collars and says, you're drinking red wine. And that's, that's why we, that's why people make things other than Pinot, I think. How have consumers changed in the time you've been making and selling wine? Are they, are they, is there, are there more people like that who are looking for anything but Pinot? Are, there, are they more educated in some ways? Are they asking different questions? Hmm. I think when you boil down to it, the consumer ultimately has stayed, you know, really the same, right? August sellers, right now in 2021, not one of my wines is more than 30 bucks a bottle. So if you're coming to the Willamette Valley, and you're looking to do the Pinot Noir experience, you're not looking at spending 20, 20 to 30 bucks on a bottle of Pinot Noir. You want to go do the 50 and 80 and 90 dollar bottles of Pinots. You want to be sat down. You want to, I mean, the difference is, is, that, is that the wine, the wine industry in Oregon has become more, more Napa-esque. Um, Shut. We'll, we'll, you know, we, we sit down. We're going to pair it with food. You know, Rachel Starr, our first winemaker, always said, sell on cheese, buy on bread. Because with a piece of cheese, I can hide any flaw in the wine. You put that piece of cheese in your mouth, you taste my wine, it's like, oh my god, that's great! That's because the cheese is like hiding everything that's wrong with that wine. So as a consumer, you just want to eat the cracker. And you want it to be a non-flavored cracker. You want it to be an oyster cracker. You want it to be a saltine. 
you want it to be as bland as possible because you want to you want to taste the flaws and decide is that something I can live with mm -hmm. I mean I knew a winemaker who could never bottle his wine because his wines and barrels it wasn't quite right he couldn't accept he couldn't compromise and say you know it was 20, it was you know it was 1999 the weather was you know this way so it's kind of like this or you know or what have you so it was like he couldn't ever manage to just just accept that there was a fault and and bottle it and say wow welcome to vintage variation which is really the very first thing I, uh, I you know the very first thing that my distributor Massachusetts discovered right he was buying 2003 pinots it was big it was wonderful and we sent him 2004 and his response was, what's wrong with this wine? I said, welcome to the next vintage. It's 2004. He goes, it's so, so, so light. If I wanted that, I'd buy French wines. Um, I said, well, yeah, but, you know, it is the next vintage. I mean, you know, I got to do something with it. Uh, but it's so light. And there's sediment on the back of the cork. I said, yeah, there was sediment on the back of the cork in 2003. It was just dark and big, and you didn't notice it. Oh. I guess maybe. So he sat there and he said, okay, well, and then he, said, he tried it again six months later. He goes, you know, I've really fallen in like with this Pinot Noir. It's like, yeah. I said, but if you're selling it to restaurants, maybe maybe we should skip the 2004 vintage go to 2005. Because every time you pull that cork, that first pour is going to have sediment in it. It's going to be cloudy and it's going to get rejected every time. It's like, ugh. You know, whereas, you know, if you do that first pour and then you do a second pour for the taste, then it would be clear and it would be lovely and light and 04, 04, 07, 2011. Those are the years that were light and cool and 07 was my favorite vintage that I've ever done. Um, because it was light and cool and lower alcohol and, and, and you know, just beautiful wines. Um, you know, although what 07 was panned on a scale of one to five as being a zero. Um, well, you know, when you're judging a vintage in 2000, December 2007, there's nothing, you're basing it on, on, on winemakers who have never seen rain, who moved from California to Oregon because they want to make beautiful Pinot Noirs, and they're going like, oh my God, oh my God, it's raining, it's raining, or it's drizzling, it's drizzling. And, and, and then the next day it's like, well, it's dry, but it's not dry enough to pick, and then the next day it drizzled, and it's, it's like, you know, it's like, well, if you guys are going to like, 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 be up in arms, then what's going to happen is, is that wine critic in California is going to go, oh, the 2007 Oregon vintage, not going to be good. Whereas, you know, 2011 vintage, the Oregon wine industry was prepared for the critics, and so it was the miracle vintage. We had these great videos that we put out about people driving through the fog and the mist and the drizzle and picking fruit and we all did wonderful things and you know I, you know it was it was a cool cold vintage tin was tin was a late vintage as well i mean you know you know the trick is is that you know you 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 roll with what you have um, and and yeah so so yeah so what did i i guess in summary right you know pinot noir uh, education Umlauts. <laughs> yes. If, if we take nothing else away from this, take away umlauts. Yes. No German wines. Right. 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 Can't sell them. Uh, tell me about we, we you, you brought up 2020 a bit earlier and, and the fires. I'm curious. 
obviously two big parts of 2020, that the fire, smoke impact at, at harvest and COVID earlier in the year. Tell me about the impacts of, of both those things on, on kind of your life and business here and on the industry as, as you saw it from your perspective. Oh, I just want to forget 2020. I just want to forget 2020. Um, 2020, um, you know, the smoke rolled in. Um, boy, it was, it was the, the wind blew out of the east like nobody's business. It ripped up a third of my, my, my roof on my crush deck. So suddenly I was like doing building repair because, well, if the crush line's exposed to the weather, then so trying to you know, get a tarp put over that. Um, it blew over a full-grown walnut tree. It's like this, this was not a normal, normal harvest. And then my brother, who is my winemaker, passed away unexpectedly at the beginning of October. So I was quite literally left you know, on my own. Um, with seven winemakers who were willing to, you know, help me as much as they as, as they could. Um, so you look around, and you say, okay, so what do I have to make wine? What was my brother talking about before he passed? Mm -hmm. um, so to deal with the smoke taint, smoke the smoke impact in the Marechal Foch, all of it becomes port. Okay, still can do that. I. I, I, this whole, I know, I knew, I know, you know, we've been making port since 2004, 2003, 2003. Um, I know when it's time to, to whack it with, with the high-proof alcohol. I know when it's time to stop fermentation. Mm -hmm. I know that because we're doing it in a stainless steel jacketed fermenter that if it looks like that time is going to be at 3 o'clock in the morning, you simply chill it down and the cold temperature will stop fermentation long enough for you to be able to do it the next day. Um, so, you know, you anticipate. You've got you to pay attention to that one. Uh, the Gamay Noir, again, I, I mentioned Chris from Twill Cellars. You know, he's like, so you, if you throw in some, some, some neutral oak chips, you know, that'll take, that'll deal with it. You know? Because I, you know, I didn't have any time to go leave the building to go look at any of our vineyards. So we did that with the Gamay Noir. That came out beautifully. I'm, I'm so pleased with the Gamay. Um, the Gewurz and the Riesling, um, you know, didn't do anything really different. They're both, they're both wonderful. Um, uh, you know, the belief that the smoke was tied to the sugar so you take them drier. Um, you know, you didn't maybe squeeze quite as hard. Um, in the press, um, a lot of the winemakers were, when they started, to, they, 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 would, they were quite literally washing the fruit as it was going in the press to wash the ash off, to wash anything that was on the outside of the grape off. And then we'd start to squeeze, we'd squeeze gently in the press, and they just dumped that first 15 gallons on the floor down the drain. Then we'd close the valve and squeeze until they didn't like it anymore and we'd stop. Um, so lighter squeezes, um, which meant it was heavier fruit for putting it, you know, for, for, for emptying the press. Um, uh, my, I, you know, forever grateful to, to my vineyard managers who let me, you know, break contract, not just because of the smoke impact, but because my winemaker was dead. Um, those two things really were gonna, you know, put me, put me over the edge if I had to figure out how to make you know, 
900 cases of Pinot at the same time, I'm doing my job, which is running the running harvest, because I just left that all to my brother. He would he would be on the board just like everybody else. He would say, you know, Tom, I have fruit coming in tomorrow. We're going to run the next day. Okay, um, Tom, I need to press tomorrow, or you know. I would book, you know, I would, you know, you know, start the punch down systems, all of those things. Um, um, you know, and so, so 2020, I mean, you know, it was, you know, a lot of rosé was made. Um, a lot of people, you know, what do you, you know, oak chips. They're, they're the valley ran out of neutral oak chips. There was none to be had. Everybody was going that route. Um, Nobody has yet managed to do any sort of mechanical process to the 2020s that I've seen so far. Um, my 2020 Pinot, I've got five and a half barrels down there because I, I, I went with one, I bought, kept one contract out of the three that I had. Um, and I'm going to blend it with a little bit of Zinfandel and a little bit of Foch, and it's going to be a red table wine. And it's going to be this big, wonderful, fruity, big old thing with some Zin and some Foch, and it'll be just fine at 20 bucks a bottle. Um, uh, what was the year? Um, the year of the horrible rains. Was that 96? 90? Oh, yeah. Uh, One of those. You know that that everybody decided to make their Pinot into red table wine because it, it was the, the the sugar level was so low and and you know we were we were hoping we could cross the Willamette River on the ferry and you know Independence after coming back from Ankeny because it's like the water was so high is the is is the ferry still running today um, and um, um, but yeah red table wine that year was great I mean yeah it was you know some of the best red red table wine out there could have been Pinot Noir. Um, but nobody wanted to, to, pardon the pun, dilute the brand of Pinot Noir, and so they turned into a lot of red table wine, or they created second labels that year. Um, um, yeah. So, so I mean, you know, I, I, our white wines came through just fine. There's going to be a lot of rosé out there. The red, their, their Pinot, our red wines really did pick up some smoke impact, but you know, the port. I can, I, I think I can make a non-vintage port. I can blend it out. I, you know, I mean, um, you know, we'll see what it tastes like after seven years in barrel, and then we'll come back to it. Um, uh, um, and you know, but I think the, the, I mean, truthfully, fires like that in the Willamette Valley are pretty much once in a generation. Uh, I mean, the last time we had fires like that in the Willamette Valley was the Tillamook burn, which would have been when my father was a boy. Um, and anything in between was field, field grass burning, field burning, which doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. And nobody talked about smoke taint when we were doing field burning. So that was happening at the same time as the early wine industry. So there you go. Well, sorry about sorry to hear about Jim and 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 sorry for your loss. I, I I'm curious with that. What are you doing this year? How are you handling 2021? So 2021, um, uh, I have a, a nephew who is actually on the OSU Extension Agency. He's a he's a staff slash faculty member. He's He's actually their dry farming expert. 
um, and has been doing dry farming experiments for the last three years on tomatoes and squash and I think garlic. Um, and um, he's going to come in and he's going to take, he's taken a couple of fermentation science courses at OSU. He's going to, he's, he's worked harvest before, so he's going to come back up. Um, he's the first nephew to bring back on, bring on board for the family family uh, uh, farm, um, and you know the big difference is is you know adjusting rates so that I can actually you know have him be salaried and paid because mm -hmm. my brother was retired and so didn't need any money so he didn't we ever paid him any money um, I however you know I was salaried since I was the you know the one who was running the company and here you know five days a week um, and yeah um, so you know we'll bring we'll bring Matthew on and 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 he'll get some hands-on learning and again you know it's a master class um, so we'll, you know, once again, we'll do Gamay and we'll do the white wines and we'll do Marichal Foch for the last season. Um, I have enough Pinot Noir in inventory in the warehouse that I, could, I can afford to, once again, skip, which is what I'm going to do because I just can't quite juggle running harvest for eight winemakers, seven winemakers, as well as being a winemaker at the same time. I need somebody to actually run the forklift if I'm a winemaker when my fruit shows up. And I don't have that. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't hired for that. Um, since we hire people and we pay people, we don't know what an intern is. An intern, and internships are, re are related to, to educational institutions. Um, so unless we reach out to a, a, like Linfield or Chemeketa, I don't know what an intern is because I think you're supposed to pay people. I don't know. I don't, money, work. You come back the next day. Volunteers are bad. What happens if a volunteer, you know, gets a two-ton from inner dropped on his toe? Is there workman's comp there? They were a volunteer. I, mean, I just, yeah. So we hire people. Yeah. We talked about your some of your early impressions of Oregon wine earlier. I'm curious about how the industry's changed from your mind. In your mind, uh, twenty obviously. Long time as a consumer, long time in the industry. What are the biggest differences in Oregon wine now? What has changed the most, and, and what does the future look like for the industry? Well, I think I think the the biggest challenge that the industry faces, and I as I get older, it becomes a bigger and bigger challenge, is how what how do you reach out? to the consumer and hold on to their attention as all these great little wineries. I mean, if the story that, that, that is told by the Oregon Wine Board is the story of David Lett, Papa Pino, moving here from California, I mean, there really is no mention of, 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 of Michael Curry in that story, who was already here. Um, who had a nursery, who, who had a nursery and a wine and, and, and a vineyard on the side of a vineyard that was around before prohibition, um, of a vineyard that was around and got a medal from the St. Louis World's Fair. Um, but we don't talk about that. Um, you know, um, that 
you talk about you, you know, that, that what happens is the big guys, the big wineries, are going to have the marketing money to drive that. And then you're going to have the segmentation, I th we're already seeing it, of, of wineries that are, uh, there's no polite way to say this, um, that are segmented based upon um, gender and LGBTQ and all of those things. I'm not saying that there's, you know, this, is, this is the tough one. This is, this is the one where I'm going to get in trouble. Um, I mean, you know, there's the new wineries. There's the wineries that, that are using who they are as a winemaker to directly appeal to a segment, a segment of the population. Um, and so anybody who doesn't want to wear their political beliefs on their sleeves, their sexual preference on their sleeves, um, who believes that we're just supposed to be nice to each other, and that should be enough, um, that those are the wineries that are going to get lost. Um, the mom and pop wineries that are over five years old, are over, you know, um, are the, 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 the Marsha Brady wineries. They're the middle kid. Nobody talks about, you know, gee, look at all these wineries that got started in, in 2000 or in the late 90s or the, you know, the, you know, anybody before 2010. We talk about the new wineries. We want the, we want the next big thing. Or it's, you know, we have these wonderful, wonderful out-of-state companies that are going, in order to protect ourselves, we're going to buy land in Oregon, and we're going to make Oregon wine because we don't think that, that where we're at now is sustainable with global warming. Um, and the ones that come here, and then, then you know, and they do, they bring with them wonderful things. Uh, they bring with them lots of dollars. And, and they really do want every, everybody to be successful. Mm -hmm. But in the world of social media, there is no, there is no clear, answer for how do you get your message out there that you are a winery. I mean, if you go and read the Yelp reviews for August Sellers or the Google reviews, they all start with, wow, I was really surprised. Their wine was so inexpensive and so good. It's not what I was expecting. They're expecting somebody who, I don't, I don't know, makes bad wine and sells it cheap. Um, um, not somebody who's like, well, the whole idea is, is you should be able to drink wine on a regular basis. You know, if, it, if it's not 50 bucks, it's not Pinot Noir. It's not a good Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. if, if it hasn't got the stamp of approval from the wine spectator or whoever, um, it's not a good Pinot. Well, 
if you're out of step with what their marketing program is, it's, you, you, you're not going to get that press. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the state fair no longer does a professional wine judging competition. You know, why not? Just it, it, why is that not important? Um, because that was, you know, it, well, we all didn't participate. That's probably why it, why it failed. Um, you know, people should say, you know, what's what's important is things that make all of us successful. Um, you know, people talk about how the big wineries, well, they're taking Oregon Pinot Noir out to everybody else. Bridgeview was doing that long before everybody else. Bridgeview is probably one of the first wineries, even before Willamette Valley Vineyards, to have representation in almost every state. Um, but Bridgeview is a Southern Oregon winery. We don't talk about Bob and Milo. They're not Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. um, I, think that, I think that the Willamette Valley has to find a way to make sure that we talk about the, the other regions as well as we talk about ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, my favorite wineries are small. My favorite wineries are the ones where the winemakers are actually really nice people. Um, and, and those are the things that, that, that make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so what the wine industry started out was, you know, gee, I kind of want to make wine, I have a real job, I make it on the side, um, or, you know, like Ponzi, I'm just going to like starve myself and work myself and my wife and my kids into the ground, you know, um, and child labor laws won't allow that anymore, um, and, um, um, you know, but it's always, I mean, you know, the profit margin in a winery is razor thin. Um, you know, I understand my, my relatives in Nebraska who, you know, farm huge, huge tracts of land. And, and every, every year is going to be their border on the edge of disaster because it's huge cash flow. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take much to, to, to push that over the edge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, why do, why, why do all these little Oregon wineries survive? It's because they're all done by retired people who have, a, who have an income. They have a retirement income. You know, I made my millions in Microsoft and now I'm going to do wine. I made my monies as a, as, as a doctor and now I'm going to do wine. I, I have, this, I have this, this, this depth of resources to allow me to do this really horrifically expensive hobby. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I'll hire some people to do it, and I probably will never pay myself. And I do it because either I love, I love wine or because it gets my name out there and I'm an ego. Um, so, um, so, you know, the early days, that, that's, you know, they, were, they were all these little, little wineries that were flying by the skin of their teeth. Um, um, and... You know, the big change was Willamette Valley Vineyards when they, you know, offered their stock option. And suddenly they were well capitalized and they had money and they could then grow and they could then look at their stockholders and say, yeah, but you know, you own a winery, it's okay. You get a discount on your wine, come buy some wine, buy some stock, come get your, your stockholders discount. Um, um, 
you know, Erath was skin of his teeth, and then he sold, you know, sold when he retired, and 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 you know, his his operation was all converted to different barns at different levels, and, and no 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 flat surface on the whole surface, I think, um, and you know, Dave Adelsheim didn't manage to put in a taste room until way late. I mean, beautiful building, no tasting room. Why not? Why not, Dave? Um, um, but otherwise, there are all these small, small mom and pop operations mm -hmm. that you know, it's hard to plan for the next generation. I am so proud of the Kramers. You know, Trudy has got her, her, her daughters involved, and that's, that's the transition. And I think that that's, that's incredible. You know, and, and Kim loves sparkling wines, and really, you know, Argyle did sparkling wines, and Kim and the Trudy, you know, the, the Kramers do sparkling wine, and, and I would buy, I'd buy Trudy's over Argyle in a heartbeat because their acts, they're, you know, doing it by the skin of their teeth, um, not because there's some, you know, major French company that backs it or owns it. Um, all the difference in the world. Um, you know, so that's that's the differences. Um, you know, August Sellers, we're you know, we're always going to be a Marsha Brady wine, um, uh, because you know, because we're out of step, mm -hmm. and and there's no way to make anybody not be in step. I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, the Oregon Wine Board is you know, winemakers are a bunch of bunch of cats. They're you know, it's uh, impossible to hurt a bunch of cats. Um, so you talked earlier kind of about sort of future for August. So let's talk, talk about sort of looking ahead for yourself and for August hours. What do you see? What do you, what do you want to have happen for you and for the, for the winery here? Hmm. And what's the future hold? Um, well, let's see. I'm, I'm, I'm only 58. So Grandpa lived to be 90, almost 99, and Dad's 87. So I've got another good, I figured I had a good, another good 20 years in me yet. Um, assuming I can get the right amount of help from my nephews, um, I, I, you know, to me it's that you know how do we hang on to this this story of 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 the Shad family? Um, you know, August Sellers. August was my great grandfather. He settled in Oregon in 1902. His oldest son Clarence, my grandfather, moved all the way across the road from him. My, my grandfather was an iron worker. He apprenticed on the Burnside Bridge, throwing hot rivets to the, to the journeyman out there on the, on the girders. Um, he spent six years at the University of Oregon building buildings. He, he you know, was the foreman on the dome at the state capitol building um, uh, you know, for do all the iron work, to, to, to do all the iron work there. Back in when that burned in 35, 38, somewhere in there. Somewhere. Um, um, and, um, you know, for me, I mean, you know, I've got this 42 acres of farmland that I want to keep from being houses. Um, um, and so, what have we done? This year, I convinced my, my aunt and my father that, that we're going to change from picking. Um, on our hands and knees, all of our walnuts like we have since, since my great-grandfather's day. We actually have ordered a, a, a mechanical walnut harvester. 
has to come from Germany. Um, hopefully it gets here in time for harvest. But this will be the first year, so completely changing how we farm, no-till, we're going to mow the orchards. It's going to sweep the nuts up. Um, you'll see, I mean, um, one person instead of 12 to do harvest. I mean, the challenge is labor. Uh, the challenge in a winery is labor. Sorting fruit at harvest is labor intensive. Um, I've always managed to hire a full crew. Um, uh, needed be, I've hired two crews. Um, and so for me, it's like, you know, I like this industry, I like wine, I like, I like visiting with people. Um, I, got, I got trees that I like to go play with. I love to drive tractors, right? Let's just let me go drive tractor for a while. Um, nobody can get a hold of you. Your cell phone, you can't hear your cell phone. You're, you know, it's great, it's great. You know, you're, 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 you're just you and your brain and, you know, the trees. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the best. So yeah, so hopefully we get the nephews back on board um, and, and the income stream stays solid enough and Matthew brings, you know, some, some great ideas for the farm and, you know, we push that and mm -hmm. we keep our little 42 acres of farmland. Farmland is the houses creep in around us because you only get one crop of houses. Um, you know, I mean, he started in 2002, we got here in 2004, it's 2021. I have sat in my winery and I have seen a black-tailed weasel. They're very rare in the Willamette Valley. I've never seen one before, never seen one since. We have a bobcat. We've seen the bobcat's family. There's something about having a bobcat show up in the middle of winter and sitting on the retaining wall while you're in the tasting room and they're just gorgeous. Um, you know, we've got, we've got cougars. There's always coyotes. Apparently there's, a, there's a, a bear running around on the hill this year. Haven't seen him yet. Um, but, you know, wow, we've got chipmunks. We got bluebirds. Um, you know, it, you don't get that when you put houses up. Mm -hmm. When you put houses up, you don't get that. You know, people have to learn to eat. They have to eat. And, and 42 acres, it's, 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 it's part of it. That's why it's not all grapes, is because walnuts and prunes, berries. I mean, you know, Matthew's looking at how to do dry farming. He's got a bean experiment going on up there. He's got dry farm tomatoes going on up there. Um, you know, what are we going to do for the next 20 years? How do we change? How do we adapt? Um, we're going to face road construction in the next 10 years that's going to threaten the existence of the winery because they're going to work on the Newburgh-Dundee bypass again. And it's going to start before where people turn off my hi out the highway to get to me. Will it make it better for me? Maybe. I don't know. It will be painful to go through that five-year process of the construction. Um, it'll make it easier to get back to the other side of the hill and, you know, because they're going to give me an overpass right outside my front door. Um, uh, which is great because we can't drive f farm equipment across the highway anymore like we used to. I mean, traffic has quadrupled since I was in high school. Mm -hmm. From 1981 to 2020, high school, uh, the, the, the traffic on 99 double has, has multiplied five times. Um, yeah, I mean, so my hope is, is that I can figure out how to pass this on to the next generation. The next generation wants it. Mm -hmm. And if not, 
Well, there's some California company that would love to own a 16,000 square foot gravity flow winery. Um, yeah, so that's what I know. I like it. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't think so. I think we got it all in. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Hey, for my pleasure. For your uh, wonderful stories. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.